I invite you, in just a minute, we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 3. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. But while you're on your way to Colossians chapter 3, go ahead and uh, put your finger in uh, Psalm 127. We're going to look at a couple of passages tonight, starting with the one in Psalms, just briefly here. As we undertake this new series, I mentioned at the end of our uh, time this morning that that we're going to undertake a series called Bless This Home, and and the idea is, is building lives and families on the Word of God. The family is under attack. And that is not a fear-mongering statement. That is a statement of fact, right? In a world today, our family's under attack. But you know, that's been the case for millennia. The family's been under attack. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan, the family has been under attack because the family is the most basic unit that God has created. This is because... This is, Satan is opposed to everything that God does, and if Satan can get into our homes, he can damage our effectiveness for God. You know, we look out into our sinful world, and we look at all the crazy things going on right now. You ever turned on the news and just shook your head at all the crazy you've seen, right? We see a fundamentally flawed world that not only tolerates sin, but flaunts pridefully their agendas on what normal homes should look like in 2022. Broken relationships, confused individuals, and searching hearts litter the wake of what we have come to refer to as the woke agenda. But before we look outward, and it's easy to look outward, we need to look in. In our churches... Our homes are just as much a target as they are anywhere else. Broken homes don't just happen in the world. They happen inside the church as well. What do you find in families in our churches today? You find apathy towards the things of God, anger towards one another, selfishness, bitterness, favoritism, hostility, and other things that plague Christian homes. And the problems we experience in the home, both in the world and within the church, go back to the same issues, okay? Everything that you see in in our homes in the world that are broken is the same that's true in our churches where homes are broken. We have failed to build our homes the way God says we need to. For, For someone who doesn't know the Lord, that building block is very, very basic, right? But the same is true in our homes in the churches as well. We have failed to build homes on the word of God in the way, and, and continue to execute those things that God has told us to execute in our homes. We have failed to obey God in certain areas, and therefore we reap the fruit of those choices. Look at, I asked you to put your finger there in Psalm 127. Look there with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his, his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate." This whole psalm that's written by Solomon 
centers around this premise. Without God, our work is worthless. worthless. That whole psalm communicates that to us. We must work. We must strive for that which is good and right. But without God, there is no hope of goodness and fruit. And so our heart's cry should be this, Lord, bless our homes. It's not just something we put on a plaque and hang it on our wall, but it's the cry of our hearts. If we are followers of God, we must prioritize God's plans for our homes above anything else. And as you go throughout Scripture, perhaps you've, you've noticed this as you've read the Bible, God does talk about blessing. And that's especially prevalent in the nation of Israel. God talks about blessing his people and, and the blessings that they will have for obeying him because they had a covenant relationship with him. He was their God and they were his chosen people. He promised to bless them abundantly, but there was a stipulation. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God reminded his people that his blessing would come when they what? When they obeyed When his people were right with him, worshiping him, and honoring him, he would pour out his blessing upon them. When they were not right with him, blessing should not be expected. The church is not a replacement of Israel, but the principle still carries over into our lives today. Those who belong to God and long to see God's blessing on their lives must prioritize above everything else being right with God. Throughout this series, we're going to explore both theologically and practically God's view on the home. But it must start with this. It must start with the most important relationship in your home. You have to get this right. Now, if you had to rank the relationships in your home, how would you do it? You would probably maybe put... Sibling relationships below the parental and child relationship, below a spousal relationship. So you may come to the conclusion that the most important relationship in your home is between a husband and a wife. And if you do so, I would argue that you've missed something. You've missed something big because the most important relationship in your home is actually a relationship that applies to everyone who lives in your home. If you are part of a home, whether that home has nine people in it or one person in it or any number in between or even greater than that, this applies to you. Because it isn't limited to a a spouse or being stipulated by age or siblings, but it touches the broad spectrum of any ages you might find in your home. The most important relationship in your home is your relationship to God. And when I say you're, I'm talking to every single one of us. Whether you're a mom or a dad, whether you live by yourself, whether you're a a kid or a teen, the most important relationship in your home is your relationship to God. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, that we have to have this fundamental and foundational relationship in order to experience God's blessing in our lives fully and completely. Paul here speaks about this relationship and what it means in our lives. And what we see is this, that my relationship with God is my most important and life-defining relationship and has immediate effects in my home. 
And I put that intentionally in the first person pronouns because that is something we all need to say. That, that my relationship with God is the most important, is the most life-defining relationship. It's more important in my relationship with my, my husband or my wife. It's more, more important in my relationship with my kids, with, with my siblings, with other people in my life, whoever they may be. Everything else is subservient to my relationship with God. And so here, Paul speaks of this, and we're just going to look through tonight what I would call, hopefully you will too, rather quickly, um, through these 17 verses, I would encourage you to, to go back later on and study these things out a little more. Uh, dig in and really understand this. Because at the end of Colossians chapter 3, which we're not going to get to tonight, Paul actually then begins to go through the home about what husbands and wives, what their relationships are supposed to look like, what kids' relationships are supposed to look like, what parents' relationships are supposed to look like. But he spends comparatively very little space on that and sets it all up with, this is the most important thing in your life. In Colossians, uh, you, you find this, this theme, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That is, that is hit over and over and over again in Colossians. And so it's no surprise here that we find the preeminence of Jesus Christ in relationship to our lives as well. And what we see in verses 1 through 4 is that a relationship with God defines what you pursue. Look there with me. If then... You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says here that that if you have new life in Jesus Christ, you have new pursuits going on in your life. So Paul presents here in these verses, what is the reality of one who knows the Lord as his Savior? Paul's audience here is Christians. He is speaking to those who have a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, the foundation of a home that that is to be blessed by God must be laid in this fact that if you want to experience the truest blessing of God in your life, you must know Him as your Lord and Savior. And you cannot enjoy the fullest spiritual blessings God promises to His own unless you are indeed His. You understand that victory over sin Life lived to the glory of God, the power of God in your life to, to grow in him belongs not to anyone except those who know Jesus Christ. These are the first and foremost blessings that God gives to us. We have that, when we have that, we enjoy heavenly peace with God. So the only way to have a godly home is to begin with a relationship with God. And once that foundation is laid, we can then build upon it the way Paul shares here. Paul states that these things must be true. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. That's a very interesting verb that Paul uses. We have translated as raised. It literally means co-resurrected with Christ. You think about the story of Jesus and the account of his death, his burial, and what we celebrate on Easter, his resurrection. 
Paul is speaking of that, that when you place your faith in Christ, you have died and risen with him. He has done this in your place and for your benefit. It reminds us of what Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Your relationship with God defines you. And so now your relationship with God defines what you pursue in life. So what does Paul say? Well, Paul says that the, that the, the pursuits of a Christian belong somewhere not of this earth. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, so if this is true in your life, here's what you do. He says, seek those things which are above. Go to verse 2. Set your mind on things above. These are what we call in Greek present imperative active verbs. It's an ongoing action. You could literally translate this, be seeking the things that are above. Be setting your mind on the things that are above. It's not just a one-time, okay, there we go. I've decided to set my mind on the things above, and I'm good now. How many of you in your own Christian walk have experienced those times where you were seeking the things of God, and you got off track, you got distracted by the things of this world, right? It's a constant renewing action that we have to do in our lives with the help of God. And the idea behind the word seek is a very picturesque word. It is the idea of striving after something, aiming for something. It's like an athlete barreling towards the championship, and he is focused on that end goal, and everything he does is focused on getting to this point. He is seeking that. It is a musician striving after the accomplished performance. It is devotion to something as your life's work and goal. It is an ongoing quest and action with it not being realized until we reach heaven. The goal of your home life is not seeking peaceful existence. The goal of your life isn't providing a roof over your head and keeping that house up to date. It isn't even trying to keep up with the overflowing calendar of events. The goal of, for you in your home every day is to strive for the things of God. That is the base goal of a Christian in their life. We're not talking about shirking responsibilities or being so, as one as one preacher put it, heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, but making sure that everything we do falls in line under what is your greatest responsibility, a life consumed with the things of God. And when Paul talks about set, uh, to, to seek the things that are above, he's talking about the things and, and characteristics that God values. This is your life's mission, and so we have to ask ourselves, do, do I strive after the things of God every day? Or do you just kind of hope that, hey, I'll pick that stuff up along the way as I go? Go back to the story or the image of the athlete. If the athlete is going to strive and seek for the prize, the goal, and give his life to that and really make it his mission. He's not going to hope that he just picks up the right habits along the way. 
you know, I'd really, really like to win that marathon, so I'll just sit here today and eat potato chips and watch some marathon runners on TV, and maybe I'll pick up some things along the way. Right? This doesn't work out real well, right? If, you, if you're going to make it your life's mission, you have to, to take on then whatever habits you have to, whatever habits are required to be the best in what you do. If we're going to be godly, if we're going to have godly homes, then we don't just hope that it's going to, we're going to pick these things up along the way. We have to strive after the things of God and seek God with all of our hearts and our lives and seek the things that are above so that we can see those things play out in our lives. In everything we do, we should be preoccupied with an eternal viewpoint. All our earthly duties should be carried out with heavenly direction. It's a realization that what we do in the temporal has an effect on the eternal. Nothing we think, even, Paul says, set your mind on things above. So nothing we think is thrown away before an omniscient God. Our thoughts even must please our God continually. We live here on earth, but our pursuits are not of this earth. So the most important relationship in your home is your relationship to God and how it affects it, how it affects you. You cannot fix earthly relationships without a proper heavenly perspective. If you are struggling with the horizontal relationships of your life, it's important that you check the vertical, the most important relationship in your life. Because if this isn't right, these aren't going to be right. You cannot show the things of God towards others if you do not meditate on God, the source of grace to live for him. So we must pursue the life we're called to live in Christ that will one day find its ultimate fulfillment. Paul talks about not only are we to seek the things above, but we're to live above. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The reason we must continue to set our mind and our actions on things pertaining to the kingdom of God is because we have died to the earthly kingdom and now live in the heavenly reality. No, you and I are not in eternity yet. Praise the Lord, because this would be a crummy eternity, wouldn't it? But we can and must live the reality of God's change in the here and now. One author put it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an invitation to do better or try harder. It is a death certificate that unfolds into a new birth certificate providing us with a renewed identity. There's a word that's thrown around a lot, identity. If you know Christ, your identity is him. And in him. In Christ we are secure. No one can take us away from him. In Christ we have a transcendent spiritual knowledge about him and his kingdom. Why? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God in our lives. He teaches us these things. Christ isn't just part of your life. Look what Paul says. When Christ, who is our life, appears, Christ is your life. There's a lot of things that you and I can make our lives. The job can be your life. 
as you seek to get the things done that you promised to get done, to grow your business and make a living. Your family can be your life as you try to keep everyone fed and clothed and educated and on schedule. Entertainment can be your life as you try to find new ways to unwind, to relax, or, other, or, or plan another vacation or trip or experience. But see, for the Christian, Christ must be our life. Everything else has to fall under him and his calling on our lives. One day, he will appear. And he will call his own to be with him. We also will be with him on that day when he returns to earth fully. And we will be perfectly glorified in him. And until that day... We live out what he has done in us. This means we are defined by this relationship in what we aren't and what we are. So a relationship with God defines what you pursue. Secondly, tonight, we see in verses 5 through 11, a relationship with God defines who you aren't. Paul talks about here the necessity of putting sin to death in our lives. Start in verse 5. Therefore... Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We have a job with the help of God, to continue to put sin to death in our lives. Since our relationship with God defines what we pursue, it is only natural to consider what that practically looks like in our lives. Here, Paul calls for believers to put to death and to put off sinful thoughts and actions. There are things here that pervert our love for God and others and our relationships. But we have to understand, if you know the Lord, sin is a master you no longer have to serve. But boy, does he come around often trying to subjugate his former servants, doesn't he? You do not have to obey sin as a Christian. You have the power of God. He is the one who gives you the ability to say no to sin and yes to serving God. In Christ, you can view that old man as nothing but a corpse in your life. Its desires need not exercise any power over you any longer. Paul also uses the picture, not only to put sin to death, but we are to treat these things like old clothes. That is the image in verse 8. Paul says to put off the old men. Literally, it talks about taking off those old, filthy rags of the old life that need to be discarded. We're not to take off the things of our old man and put them away and say, okay, now every once in a while, on a very special occasion, when I really feel like doing something wrong, I'm going to get them out and I'm going to put them back on. No, we're to put them off and to get rid of them. But yet we keep trotting them back out in our lives, right? And we understand that on this side of eternity, we're going to continue to fight sin. There is no one on this side of eternity that will be perfect. 
but how easily we give in sometimes. And Paul here gives some very specific sins. Now understand, this is one of many lists that Paul gives throughout the New Testament of sins. And none of them are exhaustive. You cannot possibly ever write down a list of all the sins that you shouldn't do, right? I mean, how many of us have ever tried to think about, okay, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, and your flesh goes and finds another way to get around what you said you shouldn't do because you're back doing what you weren't supposed to do anyway, right? My favorite list probably comes in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul ends the list with this phrase, and such like these. Hey, there's a lot more out there, okay? And I'm just going to go through here these things. These sins that Paul lists here are particularly erosive to relationships because they center on selfishness and self-gratification. And they find their expression in turning one in on himself and then on lashing out at other people. And these things here, they, we find they destroy homes, they destroy familial relationships. Because we understand this, that sin always had, has broader effects than the sinner. Keep this in mind. When you sin, other people suffer. I think that one of the lies that Satan tells us is that, hey, you know what? If you get in trouble, it will only affect you. Lie. When you sin, other people suffer. And so, what are some of these things that must be combated? And again, for sake of time, I am not going to spend, I'm just going to go through and give you a basic explanation. I encourage you um, to go back and study these through on your own and really try to flesh out what they mean to understand where these things come up, or we can talk about them at a later date. So Paul talks about fornication. That's immorality. It's any form of sexual sin we may find in our lives from wrong actions to observing these things. Then he talks about uncleanness. This is the idea of impurity, and that deals with the mind. One author said it this way, evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. It is a filthy mind thinking immoral and impure things. Then Paul talks about passion and evil desire. This is a physical and mental lust that comes about in someone's life. And we have to understand that we are not to be controlled by our passions and our lusts. We're controlled by God. Our world capitalizes on people being fed by that lifestyle. I mean, you ever, again, you ever sat and watched the Lions game on a Sunday afternoon and here comes that commercial, right? You need this new car or this whatever, right? It's feeding on this passion of, well, i got to have it. I need it. And, of course, it can go into things that are really, really dark. Covetousness, Paul says, which is really one of the big root causes of all of this. When we allow an attitude of greed and desire for things to take over, this leads us into those other sins. How many of us have in our own lives wanted something so bad that we have committed other sins to get to it? Maybe it wasn't a physical thing, but it was some kind of experience or, or desire. Or, and along the way, we just we do all these other things. It becomes an, an idol in our lives. And when things become idols, we begin to sacrifice things to them. 
When we sin, we are doing what we desire instead of what God desires in our lives. We become discontent with what we have or what we don't have or feel like we need to fulfill us. And this leads us down a path of covetousness and into sin. And you know what the antidote for a life of covetousness is? It's a life of contentment. When we are content in Jesus Christ and are trusting in him, we'll be able to ward off covetousness with his help. Paul also then speaks of anger, that we're to put off anger, which is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. It's a heart attitude. It's a person who is an angry person, and and provocations reveal that anger coming from his heart. The things that happen in the life of a person like this don't make him angry. They reveal his anger. Paul talks about wrath, which is a sudden outburst of anger. It's someone who gets stirred up and lashes out. Anger and wrath are very closely related. It is very likely that the one who is angry will react in his wrath. Paul then speaks of malice. Malice is a nature that is set on doing harm towards other people. And it may motivate anger and wrath in our lives. It is a deep-seated motivation seeking to hurt others with our words or actions. Paul then mentions blasphemy, which is the same as slander. It's insulting remarks aimed at other people. Our words have great power over other people to either build them up or tear them down. And then Paul just, he kind of gives this broad category of filthy language. He talks about obscene and derogatory speech that is intended to hurt other people. It is a mouth that finds joy in the basest of humor and uses coarse language to accomplish laughs. And the last thing we read that Paul tells us to put to death or to put off is lying. Lying is telling what is not true. That's probably the one that we all get, right? But it's also omitting something that is true. It goes both ways. Lying characterizes Satan, and it started in the Garden of Eden. You understand that the very first thing that Satan, when Satan came to Eve and talked to her, was a lie? Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? God never said that. It's a lie. And to lie is to submit ourselves to the father of lies. These things, these are things we are not to be because we belong to God. And these are the actions, but look at the attitudes we should adopt towards these things. What Paul is telling us to do, not just putting these things off, but we are to hate sin in our lives. Paul says in verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Sin shouldn't be something we just try to avoid. It should become revolting to us. We should hate sin because of God's view on it. And I just read you in verses 6 and 7, that's God's view on sin. What is coming from God onto sin? It is his wrath. Sin is offensive to God's holy nature and he will judge sin. 
But here's the truth. It's an amazing truth. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. It's in the process. It will happen. But here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ, Paul says, in which you yourselves once walked. You're not a child. Uh, you're, you're not one who's a child of disobedience. But you are called to see God's perspective. So what God hates and gets angry at, we should hate and feel righteous indignation over in our lives. That's not a word we use a lot in our house, by the way. Hate. Okay, I have kids seven and under. That's not a good word. But you know what? It's okay to hate sin. In fact, we should hate sin. Have you ever genuinely been angry over sin? Have you ever hated what it does to you and your family and your walk with God and the world we live in? And I'm not talking about, do you hate that you feel guilty after you sin? That's not the same as hating sin. Just hating the consequences of sin isn't hating sin. I'm talking about the damage it unleashes and the destruction it ravages. But you know what? We go so soft on sin in our lives. We as a, as, a, as a people go soft on sin. I remember hearing a pastor say years ago at his church, you know, we don't preach about sin. Well, then my friend, you're not preaching the gospel because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We go soft on sin because we fall back into the patterns of the old man, but the new man hates sin. So why we hate sin? One, because of God's view on sin, that he hates it. Number two, we hate sin because of what it prevents. Look what Paul said at the end here. He says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Sin causes division. There's a big word that's been thrown around in our world the last couple of years. That's the word racism. Okay, and I get it. We're all tired of hearing about it, right? But you know where racism comes from? It comes from sin. And you know, things like that, prejudice towards other people, isn't, a, isn't a, an America 2022 problem. It's, it's a mankind problem. And Paul lists here these things that in Jesus Christ there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. All of these things are man-made distinctions of what you are or aren't and who you can be and can't be. But Paul says that Christ is all and in all. You understand at the foot of the cross everyone is equal. God and his love unifies us. In him, there are no distinctions. Jesus Christ is all that matters. And if someone knows Christ, that is all their identity. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they look like, or anything else. What other identities we may pin on them, all are equal before him. But sin pulls us apart. It points out the differences and widens the gap. Sin tears the body of Jesus Christ apart and attacks his good creation. So if you want your home to be a place of God's blessing, may I just encourage you, don't go soft on sin. 
Treat it seriously. You can't make excuses for not doing the things you should do or doing the things you shouldn't. You can't play games with the word of God trying to justify your actions. You can't play the ignorant card and hope it'll be glossed over. You will reap the fruit of discord and dissension if you sow to the flesh and you sow to your son. A relationship with God defines who you aren't. You aren't a subject of the kingdom of darkness, so don't live like one. There's no power over your life unless you give it. Lastly tonight, Paul then goes on to define, tell us that a relationship with God defines who you are. Verses 12 through 17, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, because of all of this, because you are to seek the things above, because this, you're to put all these things off, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says what we're to do is we're to put on godliness because a relationship with God not only defines who you aren't, but defines who you are. And in fact, This is the natural outcome of one who has life in Jesus. Since we have died and risen with Christ, and since we are to put sin to death and put off the works of the old man, it is only natural that we replace it with something. This is our new life's calling. These are very straightforward, applicable commands that we are to put on or what shouldn't be, and they shouldn't be unusual, strange, or head scratching. Instead, these are the natural outflow of what God does in our lives. Just as the old man naturally produces sin, the new man that looks like God is expected to produce these things. And your relationship with God should bring about these things in your life. And again, I'm going to go through them rather quickly, but hopefully you have time, another time to go back and, and maybe study these out some more. What are we to put on? Well, Paul speaks here of tender mercies. This is a feeling of deepest pity and sympathy for others. And what it does is that it motivates us to care for other people. It means that we are concerned to meet others' needs. And instead of focusing on self, we are focusing on others. Paul then says we are to put on kindness. Kindness is caring about the good of others. It's not harsh. And this word kindness here is closely related to the word compassion. Kindness is extended to everyone, even if it is not reciprocated. You ever been kind to someone and they weren't very kind back? Had compassion on someone? I mean, Jesus had compassion on us, right? Paul then speaks of humility, which is a lowly attitude before God. It is a realization of who we really are 
without God. And its opposite, pride, so easily infiltrates our lives. I heard this definition one time of humility and I've never forgotten it. Humility is not thinking of yourself last. Often that's what we think, right? Oh, I'm humble. I think of myself last. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Humbling yourself before God and others. Paul says, put on meekness, which is a lowly attitude towards others. And it's the idea of we're willing to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. Another word for meekness here would be gentleness. And gentleness can and should shine through even in hard circumstances. Then Paul says to put on long-suffering. Long-suffering is a steady response in the face of provocation. I think long-suffering is, is again, such a great word because it's just a great picture of what it is. It's suffering long. It's we're in the midst of this and we're just going to continue to do what's right. Not getting angry with someone when we probably could. It's the opposite of resenting a person. Then Paul says, to bear with one another. This means to stick with someone despite adverse circumstances or actions. Now, this is not the same as a tolerance of false teaching. You know, it's not saying, well, I mean, I know they say things, you know, they're teaching things that aren't in the Bible, but let's just hang with them, right? No, we're supposed to stand up for the truth, right? But it's not giving up on someone and their potential to grow in Jesus Christ. Then Paul speaks of forgiveness. Graciously choosing to release others' wrongs against you. Choosing to never bring these things up again and seeking a restored relationship. Because forgiven people are forgiving people. And I think it's important, I I try not to camp on these as I go because we're trying to make it through here. But understand that forgiveness is defined, always rightly defined throughout Scripture as a choice. You choose to forgive someone. Because again, we have this philosophy sometimes. Well, forgive and forget. And then we get hung up on that forget part. Well, I haven't forgotten, so have I really forgiven? If that's your definition of forgiveness, Satan's going to make sure you never forget. And you have to look no further than God himself to understand that forgiveness is not forgetting. Is it possible for God to forget things? Well, no, he's an infinite, omniscient God. So how does he forgive your sins? He chooses to remember them no more. He chooses to not bring them up to your account. He chooses to credit Jesus Christ's righteousness to your account when you come to him for forgiveness. Paul says to put on love. Love is the peace that holds it all together. God's love for us, our love for God, And our love for others bind all Christians together. If we truly have what what is referred to as agape love, that's the the Greek word here, comes from agape. If we have that love for God and others, we can find strength in him to put on the new man. Paul says put on peace. Peace is a ruling emotion and a status. God has made us at peace with himself through Jesus. God is the only one who gives us true peace. And that peace from God should run our lives every day. 
How wonderful it is, if you know the Lord, you don't have to go through life searching for answers, but can reflect that peace with God to others around us. And so very naturally, Christians and Christian homes should be places where people are at peace with each other and even at peace with those who aren't Christians. We were at odds with God and he extended peace to us. We can extend peace to others even if they don't seem compatible with us. God's peace allows us to dwell as a unified body in him. And then Paul says, here's an interesting one, put on thankfulness. Thankfulness is a right and godly perspective. Thankfulness is, again, a choice. Have you ever met an ungrateful person? They're not really fun, are they? There's always something wrong. There's always something off. There's always something that can be better. There's always, or maybe they don't vocalize it. They just don't say anything, right? They just act like everybody owes them something. But we should think, we should understand that, that God has given us so many amazing blessings to thank him for that we should seek to show him that thankfulness every day. And we should also show this attitude of thankfulness to other people. Thankfulness reflects a heart that recognizes I have received an incredible blessing from God, perhaps through a person that has blessed you. Think with me for a minute, okay? Think about all those things. I know we, we just ran through all of those things, but, but just even if you have to look down at the text, okay, to consider these things. Think there for just a second. If these things are present in your home on a regular, ongoing basis, is that a home likely to experience the blessing of God? Is that a home where his presence is felt? Is that a home where the tenor is one of constantly pleasing God and therefore leading us to make decisions we know follow the Lord? Of course it is, right? If what we just read in verses 12 through 17 is, is constantly going on in our lives, in the lives of people of our homes, that's going to be a place where God's blessing is seen. And this is just a brief overview. As I said, an in-depth study is certainly warranted. But the question is, how do you get to that point? How do you get to this? How do you get to these things in your life? Well, you get to these things by realizing where your identity lies. And that's where we wrap up tonight. We see identity in the things of God in these last few verses. Paul says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In order to live the way God expects us to live, we must be immersed in who God is and what he said. We find this in his word to us, the Bible. God's word should have root in our lives. In verse 16, Paul commands that the word of God should be taking up residence or be at home in our lives. And that precious, infallible, authoritative word should be ever inside of us. Here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ, this word of God should be part of your redeemed DNA written on your heart. 
And as with any relationship, you know what it takes to know God more? It takes time. If you want to get to know somebody, it takes time. You've got to spend it with them. And you find here that as part of, God's, uh, part of this, God's word creates community. Paul is speaking here collectively to the church in Colossae. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that word you is plural. But there is an individual application here. That we are to let, we are commanded to, to have the word of God dwell in us. And the word here that he uses is richly. But, but a, maybe a, a better translation of that word is abundantly. Why? That we may teach one another the things of God, that we may admonish one another against the things of sin, and that it just pours out of our lives in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so ask yourself this question, how abundantly does the word of God dwell in your life? Is the word of God, the scripture, abundantly dwelling in you, or do you get by on meager portions? If your time in the word of God is few and far between, rushed or rote, then you will not be able to live in his strength and for his glory very effectively. Our identity comes from his word that we may live for him. And that's exactly how Paul closes this section in verse 17. He says, and whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever is done is to be done in the name of Jesus. Our speech should fall in accordance with who he is. Our our actions should honor him to others. Whatever we do should lift him up and reflect him. And from here, I said earlier, Paul's going to launch in verse 18 of some specific relationships in the home. But it starts with the most important relationship, that is our relationship with God, that must be right so that the other relationships of our lives will fall in line. My relationship with God is my most important and life-defining relationship and has immediate effects in my home. As a Christian, you are defined by your relationship with God. Your identity isn't found in your marital status, your parental responsibilities, or positions that you hold within your church or anywhere else. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. I have some news for those of us who are married. That person you married isn't going to fulfill you. Don't say amen too loud, okay? Your child's obedience won't satisfy your soul. And whatever else you seek to find purpose and meaning in in your life will leave you lacking. The first place you go to make changes in your home isn't somebody else. The first place you go to make changes in your home and your life is your relationship with God. So very simply tonight, I would ask you to do this. Will you evaluate the most important relationship in your home? Will you honestly, will you be honest with yourself 
and before God who knows you better than anyone else. Your home may consist of one person, it may consist of 15 people or somewhere in between, but this principle is true across the board. Men, do you have a vibrant, active relationship with God? Ladies, is everything you do focused on reflecting Christ? Teens, are you teaching yourself now the habits of abundantly filling yourself with the word of God? And kids, are you seeking God's help to fight sin? The way to a home that pleases God is each individual making this a priority in their lives. Now, some are going to need more guidance than others. You know, those who are younger in the faith or or younger children are going to need more guidance than others to teach them the things of God and how they reflect it in their lives. But it's learnable, even by our children. This is where we must start if we want to see God bless our homes and use them for his honor and glory. And we're going to go throughout the next several months through this series and talk about what God's definition of, of things in the home look like and, and practically what God would expect of us to carry out a, a home that reflects him. But it has to go back here. This has to be the touchstone that your relationship with God is first and foremost. And it takes regular time with him and regular submission to him to see him do great and mighty things. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to study it together tonight. Thank you that you very practically and pointedly speak to us through your word about how we can live lives, even in our homes, that are right with you. We would ask tonight, God, that you would challenge our hearts and lives to this end, that we would live in a way that would honor and glorify you that we would, through your help, seek to put off and put to death sin in our lives and put on that which is right and reflects you. Lord, there are so many things that vie for our attention. There are relationships, there are jobs, there are entertainments. Whatever it is, Lord, that's taken the place of a vibrant, active growing relationship, Lord, would you do whatever it takes to put our perspective back on you? Sometimes those things hurt. Sometimes they're going to make us uncomfortable. There can be no growth without discomfort, Lord. We ask that you would do a great and mighty work in our hearts and lives, in our families, in our homes. May each one of us as an individual be a reflection of what you've done in us. May we interact with one another, in our, whether it be in our homes or in our church body or in the community in a way that would honor you and glorify you and lift you up and be a testimony of your grace. In your name we pray, amen.